Big sermon today. We have 15 verses, a lot to cover. It's the first four commandments, so let's dive in. We are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. So if you would have a Bible, open it up and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. If you didn't bring one, they will be on the screen. Here we go. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and the ordinances I am proclaiming as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Verse 8, do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, any of your livestock, or the resident alien who lives within your city gates so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that it would be profitable to our lives. I pray that it would change our hearts and change our minds to live differently in obedience to you. Father, we thank you for our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ this morning as we look at your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember in grade school that uh, there was really nothing better to hear than uh, the teachers say after a test this. Many of you will be happy to know that due to a lack of performance on the last test, I've decided to curve the grade. Let's just say I was always included in the many of you will be happy. I was not a great test taker in school, in grade school, in high school, and now I'm in my master's and it's better. It's getting better. (laughs) But the teacher had the ability to change the grading system based on their students' lack of performance, their lack of understanding, their lack of even meeting the teacher's expectations. The teacher didn't have to do this. It was their prerogative to do so. And I think, I think sometimes that's what we want God to do with his commands. Since we lack obedience to him, we want him to change the standard. 
We want him to change his expectations because we feel that they're too high for us to achieve. So today's message is titled, Learn and Follow. Learn and Follow, something that Israel and even us today are sometimes not very good at. If you've been with us over the past couple weeks, then you remember where Moses is at. Moses is exhorting his people, reminding them who they are, who God is, and how to conduct their lives as as they enter the promised land. Now, this new generation is getting a reiteration of a covenant God made with their parents. Now, their parents are dead, as we've learned in the past couple weeks, because of their disobedience. So now they've all died, and, and, and Moses is reiterating the covenant that was made to their parents. So I started with this illustration of of a teacher curving the test because I'm sure many of them were probably thinking, our parents couldn't keep this law. Our, Our parents couldn't obey. How in the world can God have the same expectations for us when they couldn't even follow? But God does not change his standard. He doesn't change the rubric in which he scores our life and what he wants in obedience. God's law is perfect. It's perfect when he gave it 40 years prior. It's perfect to this generation that Moses is reiterating it to them. And it's perfect for us today. So our first point is, is a simple point, yet foundational and where we really need to start this morning And it's this, if you're following along with the handout, God's word is perfect, and it's wise to learn and follow. God's word is perfect, and it's wise to learn and follow. One purpose of the commandments was that through obedience, Israel would look different to the world, to be set apart as a people group who represented Yahweh, the one true God. Now, to represent God, they must learn what God expects of them. They're expected to take time to learn and to implement those things that they've learned into their daily life and follow it. It's been quoted like this. A mind that has been schooled in godly instruction is a reservoir of virtues for the body to follow. I said I wasn't very good at school, so that, I'm, I like, I'd like to put that more simply. You're only gonna follow God if you know how to follow him. You can't follow God if you don't know how to follow him, know what he expects, know what he wants from your life. Obedience is a response to understanding, not merely just role keeping. It's a response to what what he wants. So verse six, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. One simple verse, full of knowledge for Israel to understand. He's saying, I am Yahweh your God. Now I keep saying Yahweh and I don't wanna blow past that. But in the Old Testament, any time that you you see Lord in all capitals, it's the revealed name of God, Yahweh. That's how how it's designated in the Old Testament. 
So if you're reading through it, then you know that all capital Lord equals Yahweh, the true revealed name of God to his people. It's how he relationally identifies himself with his people. So in this, in this verse, we see a possessive nature of God towards, towards his people. He takes his flag, per se, and he plants it into this specific people group. I am your God. You are my people. Both of their identities are also revealed here. God is their deliverer. And who were they? They were slaves. God the deliverer, they were slaves, identities. But their deliverance, we have to remember, was not based on any type of conditions. Rather, God delivered them out of slavery because God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that covenant was unconditional. There were no terms to that covenant. God did not say to Abraham, Abraham, if you do X, Y, and Z, I will make you a great nation. That's not, that's not what he promised. He says, I will make you a great nation. There was, no, there was no conditions that were given to Abraham. It was unconditional covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. But, not but, meaning they got delivered out of Egypt because of a promise and not anything that they did. Not even because of their faithfulness. Not because they followed some type of conditions perfectly. It was a promise, period. So now we're reading a new covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, which is conditional. And this is different than the covenant with Abraham. God says, I now expect X, Y, and Z from you. And if you do them, I will bless you. And if you don't do them, I will curse you. It's now conditional because God has done something for them unconditionally. Understand that. God did, so now he expects his people to do. God delivered their, the people out of slavery, and now he expects them to do something. So when we think about that, we have to understand that that deflates the idea of an oppressive God who requires like strict role keeping. They did nothing to deserve this deliverance. But now that they're delivered, they're expected to do something. They're expected to follow and obey the one who delivered them from an oppressive master which will bring us to our next point. And it might make us think a little bit. Our next point is this. We are all slaves. The choice is to what? Let me dig into this a little bit. The lie of, of, of Western culture is that we have, we have this freedom to make our own destiny. But we really don't. The truth is that we are all slaves. We're either slaves of sin or we're slaves of righteousness. Slaves of sin, slaves of righteousness. One of two. The idea of slavery in any culture is repugnant. But let me define slavery for us this morning. A slave is one who has absolutely no 
authority over him or herself. So the Israelites were delivered from their human oppressive master, Pharaoh. So let me, let me ask you a question. Does their freedom allow them to decide their own way and their own destiny? Are they free now to set their own standards of life? Whether or not, now, whether or not they obey is their free will choice. And their choice may give them a, a false sense of self-authority over their own lives. But we have to understand that God is the ultimate authority over all life, all creation. So in a sense, they've exchanged a oppressive human master for a righteous heavenly master, yielding them still slaves. They're not freed to go do what they want, but they are freed to be a people group representing the one who delivered them, Yahweh, the one true God. And by obeying his conditional covenant, that's the expectation. That's the expectation he has for his people group as they go out into the world. So let me, let me illustrate this how, how Paul does in Romans, in Romans 6, 15 through 23. He says this, Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And, have been, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Still a slave. Paul lays out the two options. Slave to sin or we're slaved, enslaved to righteousness. Either way, we're enslaved. Human nature is to fight against that idea of being a slave. And that fact actually caused the fall of man. We like the idea that we're in charge of our own lives, that we have ultimate authority of everything that we do. And we can be confused that we do have that through our free will. But ultimate authority is God's authority. God is over all to believer and unbeliever. He is the ultimate authority. He is our creator. He knows what's best for us. And understanding that we have a heavenly master who knows what's best for us what he requires in obedience is not oppressive. It's not oppressive at all. He created us. He knows what, what we should be doing with our lives. That's not oppressive. That's God's love for us. That's what he wants. That's not oppressive. It's God's love. And I'd take it a step further. It's not just God's love. It's freedom. It's freedom. And that freedom by, by following him is, is realized by our submission to the heavenly father. 
We have freedom through submission that's not oppressive because we're submitting to what is actually right and best for us. That's countercultural. But it's only in that understanding that we can even start to dig in to these Ten Commandments. We needed to go through all that to understand the commandments. So here we go. Let's start. Commandment number one. Do not have other gods besides me. Pretty good first law. I think I'd probably where I would have started too. <laughs> Considering everything that we've covered so far, obviously he would start there. Israel was about to enter the promised land. And, and it's important to realize that this, this land was not some vacant, raw land awaiting, awaiting settlement. This land was occupied by many different people groups, all of which who had their own gods, who had their own worship systems, who had their own temples and statues and all these idols. That's what, that's what they were going to walk into. So understanding that, that's why God's saying, don't, don't take any other gods but me. Now, how should we combat how should we combat the temptation of taking other gods for them and for us today? The only way to do that is to fill yourself up with the one true God. If you fill yourself up so stinking full with the one true God, it pushes everything else out of your life. There's no room for any other God to infiltrate your heart because you're so filled with the one true God. That's how we combat it. That's how they needed to combat it, by learning and following and being dedicated to the one who delivered them. And the same is us for us today. Now, commandment number two is closely tied to, to commandment number one, but just different. Commandment number two says this in verse eight, do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquities on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Closely related to number one, yet different. And it's, it's in this difference that I, I wanna pause just for, just for a second from preaching the text. I wanna, I wanna show the difference. We need to know where our foundation is in Orthodox Christianity so that we can evangelize other people. And what I wanna show that many people don't realize is the difference between Orthodox Christianity's 10 Commandments and Roman Catholicism 10 Commandments. So if you would put up that picture, Alex, the Catholic Church changed their 10 Commandments. The Orthodox Christianity canonized the Ten Commandments around 200 A.D., and that's on the left-hand side. 
Now, the Catholics changed it about 400 AD, and what they have done is they have taken out number two, you shall not make an idol image. They've removed that from their Ten Commandments and shifted everything up. And the idea behind it is they say it's closely related to number one. Now, literarily speaking, that there are literal, like, points in Scripture that show the structure of the Scripture, and that's not true. So they've removed it. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why don't they like that one? Well, if you've ever gone to a Catholic service and walked into their sanctuary, you'll find out real quick. There's statues everywhere. If you went to a Catholic wedding before, you've seen the bride kneel down in front of Mary, lay a rose at her feet. If you've gone to holy days before, you've gone and they bring the crucifix down and you kiss Jesus's feet. Those are idols. Those are statues that you're worshiping. Even Saint Joe, if you bury them in your yard, your house will sell. I need a handful of these statues because I sell real estate. I just put them in the ground. We live in large. So you can understand why they've removed that. They've done a couple things. So in, in, verse, in uh, commandment four, they've changed Sabbath to the Lord's day. And we'll get into that today. That's in, that's in my, my sermon. And then to make up, clever, clever foxes, to make up the, the one that they've removed, they've split number 10 into two. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not covet your neighbor's goods, as if those aren't similar. So I say all of this, and I pause preaching, why? To criticize? No, but to evangelize. We need to know the foundational differences between Orthodox Christianity and other religions, and we are in, uh, uh, Western Pennsylvania is a heavy, heavy Catholic area. So if we don't know where we stand, we don't know these differences, then we cannot evangelize our family, our brothers and sisters. I, for one, have tons of them. So that's why I bring it up. That's why I wanted to explain the image. We can be done with that. You can take it off the screen, Alex, and we're going we're gonna to proceed here. So Israel was, was going to be tempted to take other gods, which would have been... A, a total violation of commandment number one. Now, after taking other gods and allowing other gods to reside in the promised land, what's the next logical step? They're going to worship them. They're going to fall into idol worship. It's just the next step that will happen. This was Israel's greatest failure. They let these gods remain in the land that God had given them. Their greatest failure. Now, if you want to read this, read Judges, Kings, Chronicles, all of that. But if you want to just look at the summation of of the failure of Israel, write this down. 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 23. It lays out the exact thing that caused all of this, and it was idol worship. God states that this kind of idol worship 
invokes his jealousy. Not, he doesn't say that in commandment number one. And it's out of this jealousy, because of this, this idol worship, because they've exchanged worship that was deserving to God, the one true God, the revealed God, and they've exchanged it to some idol that is nothing, that is mere concrete. And because of that, they would be cursed. He would bring generational consequences because of their idol worship. But on the flip side, if they would only obey, he would show faithful love to a thousand generations. So the the next application point obviously could be, obviously could be don't don't make idols in your life and worship idols. But I'm going to go a little bit different route here. Our next point is this. Spiritual choices in worship have generational repercussions. Spiritual choices in worship have generational repercussions. So this hits home for me. So I was brought up Catholic. My parents are Catholic. My grandparents were Catholic. They were Catholic, 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 all down the family line. And to my knowledge, I am, I'm the first one that is freed from that religion. Now, is my family tree cursed? No. Is the hand of God just too far away from them? No, I think that's silly. That's not scriptural. But what I am saying is spiritual choices and how you worship in your life have generational repercussions. 90% of the time, our views are exactly like our parents. That's reality. The apple don't fall far from the tree, does it? That's the reality for Israel. And if you read Kings, you, you read, he fell, he, he was, did what it was evil in the sight of the Lord, like his father, like his father, all down the line. But the reality is, is that's for us too. If they fall away and worship another God, that's how they'll raise their children. How we worship the one true God, that's how our children will worship the one true God most of the time. So coming to, coming to service, coming to, to church is great. It's what we, what we want to do. We want to come together as, as one body and worship together. But if the way we worship has generational repercussions, what do we do in the other six days? What is our life showing? Are we raising our children in the Lord? Are we placing, are we placing God most important in our lives, in our household? Do our children see that? Do people outside of our family see that? Our primary, primary responsibility, and I think Sean Fenner will be preaching on this in a couple weeks, is to shepherd our children, modeling worship to God. Primary responsibility. Not a sport, not anything else. No extracurricular activities. Prioritizing God first. That's what we're called to do. 
So as we, as we look forward to Sean's sermon, I would encourage us, write out our schedule. Look at our week and say, where am I placing the most priority? What am I doing to show my family that I love God more than anything in my life? What are they seeing? What am I modeling for them? Would anybody outside of my family say I'm a follower of Christ? Sean, you better bring a good message. (laughs) Commandment number three, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So we can learn what this means by taking a look at what, how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To hallow something is not something that we say today, but it's to make it holy, separated, sanctified. Jesus' prayer is that the Father's name would be made holy, set apart, because of his mere nature. His essence is holy. It is set apart. The literal, the literal interpretation of this actually caused the religious leaders to never speak the name Yahweh because they were afraid that they would break this commandment. And as a result, we kind of see it in our translations with capital L-O-R-D. They wouldn't even write it. They did not want to break the literal interpretation of the relational name that he had given to his people group. They didn't even want to say it because they were afraid that they would break that. They tried to protect themselves. But there's really, there's two levels of misuse. There are the literal misuse. You know, you're not, don't be cursing God for everything in your life. Don't be JC in everything, something happens in your life. We don't want to do that. We don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. That's a, that's a literal translation. That's a no-no. But another misuse of the name of God is the conduct of his people. Israel is set apart. The flag has been, has been staked in this people group, and he's telling them, I expect this from you. You're representing me. The same way our children, when they're young, they represent us as parents. It's a reflection of us. The same way God's telling his children, his people group, the way you act is representative of me. That's why I get to set the standard because my name's attached to it now, not just yours. So our conduct, our conduct is representative of Yahweh. Israel's conduct is represented of Yahweh. They were supposed to be different in the world. They're supposed to look different in the world to a dark world full of idols as they went into this promised land. So being disobedient is contrary to what is right. And when we're not doing what is right, we're misusing or misrepresenting the name of God with our actions. Holds true for them, holds true for us, and brings us to our next point. Our conduct is representative of how we value the cost of salvation. 
our conduct is representative of how we value the cost of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, popular memory verse for Christians. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. If we continue to sin in our lives, devoid of recognizing a higher authority in our life, if that's us today, then I ask and I, I plead with you, rest on that point. Think about your conduct being representative of Jesus Christ. If you're a professing believer, especially, your conduct is, is representative of the cost of Jesus' life. And is that, what is, is that what our conduct is showing? Is that what our life is demonstrating? This idea should motivate us. Our conduct is representative, so it should motivate our conduct, realizing the cost. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John could have chose the same word in this verse, but he doesn't. He could have used the same word, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son of God does not see life. But he uses obey. And what, what we do as Christians today, because of translation or because of our own, I don't know, instinct in our own sinfulness, is we want to separate those two. I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Good. Will you obey it? I ain't obeying that. Like, that's just way too hard. I'm not, I'm not following them. I'll, I believe it all day long. Yes, I'm saved. I ha- that's false salvation. That's false salvation. Believe and obey are so intertangled in Scripture, you cannot pull the two apart. You can't do it. We must not separate them. We must obey. We must learn and follow. We must demonstrate God's name representative of our conduct in a dark world. That's our job as the body of Christ. That should motivate us to live it out. Let's move on to commandment number four. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You do not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or your donkey, any of your livestock, your resident alien who lives within your city gates so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. 15, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. How happy 
was the ox and the donkey because of this commandment. Like they didn't have to go work that day at all. Some of you farmers, leave your animals alone. But we must remember that we are not, we're not the original recipients of this covenant. The nation of Israel was. I say that because I might challenge some of your views here on the Sabbath. Christ came to fulfill the law. We were all in agreement to that. He, he fulfilled it perfectly because we can't. This does not make the law obsolete. It doesn't make it null and void. It doesn't make it useless. But it makes it not legally binding on us any longer. We're in a new covenant ushered in by Christ and his work. I say that because we need to keep that in view as we discuss the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath holy. So let me, let me make a couple observations. The Sabbath was created by God as an example for man to follow, right in creation. Work six days, rest one. The Sabbath was considered Saturday, the end of the week, which goes right in line with work six, rest one. At the end of the week, you rest. Israel was just delivered from their, the oppression of slavery where there was no rest. God's covenant with them now, now that they've been delivered from slavery, was to work six and take a day off. And in that day off, remembering how hard they used to labor and toil in slavery in Egypt with zero rest. God now mandates, based on the creation principle, that they need to rest. And they need to focus on what he did for them. And it's even ironic. This would be, this would be countercultural that the mandate was for them who were once slaves and now have slaves to give their slaves a day of rest. That would not, that would not be what you did in those days. That would be countercultural. <clears throat> Let's fast forward to Jesus now <clears throat> in the new covenant, right before he makes a stink on the Sabbath by healing people in front of the religious leaders. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A few verses later, Matthew 12, 8, he says, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Our next point is this. In Christ, we find our Sabbath rest. In Christ, we find our Sabbath rest. The instituted <clears throat> legal obligation of the Sabbath for Israel was a foreshadowing to Christ. The Sabbath is not what Christians coin. We have, we, 
we, we sometimes do this in air. It's the Sabbath is not Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. That's why New Testament Christians, that's why we meet on Sunday. That's why John specifically says in Revelation, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. There's, there's no indication in the Bible that the Sabbath has now converted into the Lord's Day. There's no indication of that. They're still separate. <clears throat> Excuse me. But even in the timing of days, I think there's a, there's a beautiful illustration. So Israel was the work six, rest one, Saturday, end of the week. If Christ is our Sabbath, and we see Sunday as a type of Sabbath, how's that, how's that work now? We rest the first day of, week, of the week, and that rest enables us for what good works over the six days. It's a beautiful illustration if we see Sunday as a type of Sabbath. Paul, let's see what he says about it. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter, in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance of is Christ. Or he even says in Romans 14:5, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else's judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. The point is this: Christ is a substance, and we have freedom in Christ. If your conscience wants you to observe Oh, a Sabbath day. Paul's saying, by all means, observe it. Let your conscience bear witness to it. The line that Paul's drawing here is don't make that a legal obligation for salvation any, as if you're, you're, breaking the, you're breaking a law that now you cannot receive salvation. Don't guilt others into like, oh, you didn't take Sabbath this week. You, are you even saved? <clears throat> That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, let me back it up. Although we're free from the legal obligation of a Sabbath, we dare not ignore the importance of the principle of rest that was given to us in creation. We do not ignore that. We do not ignore the example that was given to us in commandment number four. But within that commandment, we have two commandments. Work six. Rest one. I will be completely honest. My wife can attest, I am terrible at resting. I can't rest. I have like high energy. I always have to be doing something. I will work myself into oblivion. If it is a day off, like I will just, I'll be like, well, I should probably like, I don't know, organize those files on my computer or something. Like I gotta do something. I don't feel like productive unless I'm doing something. I'm terrible at rest. During during my ordination interview, might be a weird question for you guys to hear, but I was, I was asked to self-assess. How would the enemy take me out? And my answer was, I'll probably work myself and neglect every, everybody in my life. That's how I'm wired. And the point of all that is to kind of see your own faults, say it out loud, and have accountability among the other pastors are in that, in that ordination interview. That's, that's why we do it. 
But that's the reality. That's how I'm, that's how I'm wired. And I'll never forget Pastor Cody Bockelkamp. He's from a different church. Uh, he was brought in as, as part of my interview process. And he gave such wisdom out of this verse. He said this, depending on the person you're talking to, doesn't matter who, they either need to hear one of two things. You need to work six days or you need to rest one. Meaning some of us need to hear, get to work. Stop toiling. Stop being a busybody. Stop procrastinating, getting nothing done because we're just watching like Netflix and then we've neglected duties and responsibilities throughout the week that we've wasted our day of rest because we're not prioritizing work over the six. Or someone like me needs to hear, you need to take a break. You need to reprioritize as well. Some of those things don't need to get done because there's always gonna be another task to fill up that empty slot when you get it done. So take a rest, take a break, reprioritize. Whatever side of that equation you're on, we need to heed to the principle that was given to us by our creator God because there's wisdom in it. And remember that Jesus Christ is our ultimate rest for our souls. He is Lord of the Sabbath. and We need to remember that. I'm gonna close today rereading verses six and 15. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt in 15, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. These two verses are saying the same thing. And these two verses sandwiched, it begins and ends these first four commandments. And that's important. These two verses were given and should have been all the motivation Israel needed to obey, to learn and follow. The reality is, is that the deliverance from slavery for the Israelites should have just invoked something in their gut to be like, I am a thankfulness to be out of that situation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn and follow the one who saved me from that. That's all they needed. And I think being so many years removed from this that we can look back and say, how in the world could they not obey? They just saw some miraculous things. They followed smoke and fire and they saw the, the Red Sea part. They saw all these plagues. How in the world can they not obey? But before we cast the first stone, we gotta ask ourselves why we're not obeying either. In Christ, we've been delivered from slavery of sin, of death, eternal separation. Justice for our sins was carried out on the body of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion. 
he screamed in agony, it is finished. The payment was complete. He died. He was resurrected three days later, giving evidence that that sacrifice was sufficient to redeem the world. And as believers, we have been, we've been sealed as a child of God through the Holy Spirit. Parting the Red Sea is peanuts compared to that. So when we look back and say, you guys, are, what are you doing? Think about our own lives, what we've been delivered from, the salvation that we have. Let that be the motivation. Let that be all the motivation that we need to learn and pursue him as a Christian today. Devote your life to it. So I leave us with this point. Is the gospel motivation enough for you to believe and obey? Is the gospel motivation enough for you to believe and obey Christ? And I have a yes or no there. I think there's power in actually saying that to yourself and actually circling one of those. And you'll notice there are two options there. There is not a third. The third is what Jesus calls lukewarm Christian, and he wants to spit that out of his mouth. It's what he says in Revelation. You're either in for Christ or you're not. There's no easy middle ground. That's a lie. That's a lie that's often given in the American gospel. That's a lie. We must believe and obey, and I encourage us to do that. If you're not a Christian here today, you can be a child of God too. If you're willing to repent of your sins, believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, and you're willing to make him the supreme authority over your life, submit your authority to him, you can be a child of God too. If you're willing to live for him, obey him, and submit to him, if you need help with that, you can go to him in prayer and ask him just that. Repent of your sins and ask him to come in to your heart and to help you understand, to learn and follow him.